as I spoke last week in Georgia and spoke in a number of different settings, I had the opportunity to be in a number of different churches and Christian groups, and I just wanted you to know that I miss being here, even if it's only one Sunday. And this is our pulpit, this is our church, and we thank God for it. We thank God for the opportunity to be in the ministry in this place, and there's no place like the Bible Church, believe me, and I'm glad to be here. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, you know that before I left, I was going to preach a message from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to chapter 9, verse 1, entitled, What Will You Give in Exchange for Your Soul? And as I pondered that message and as I prepared that message, you remember I said to you that I really couldn't preach that message until we understood some things regarding salvation and discipleship, for this is an incredibly difficult demand on the part of our Lord. He says in Mark 8, 34, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You remember from last time that I said to you that that is a very, very difficult word from our Lord. It's a very challenging word. It's a demand for discipleship. As I told you last time, this particular passage has been misunderstood and misapplied by so very many. And it has done so, I'm sure, because there are so many people who would assume that since this is such an incredibly high demand on the part of Jesus, that this must not be talking about salvation. And therefore, they extrapolate off of that, that this must be some sort of higher standard or some sort of second step from salvation into discipleship. And they bifurcate the two. They separate the two out and say that salvation then must be the first step of intimacy with God and then discipleship must come along later because surely if Jesus was demanding this level of discipleship by those he was commanding to follow, that this looks like a works salvation. You remember I said to you that it is most certainly not a works salvation. And that I also said to you that according to the Bible, 
Salvation and discipleship are synonymous. They are the same thing. Salvation and a call to follow Jesus Christ are one and the same. A Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a Christian. And one thing we want to make very, very clear before we exposit a passage like this is that Jesus is not referring to some second level of commitment after one is saved. Nor is he referring to someone who could be saved who decides not to step up to a second level, being content with simply and only their salvation. No, this is a call to salvation. This is a command by Christ to be saved, i.e., to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, if we were to look beyond simply the pages of this text and the Gospel of Mark itself as a whole, we would understand that the background of a passage like this is related to the great persecution that Christians were undergoing at this time. The persecution of Christians was probably at no other time in history more intense than when Nero was in power in Rome. And when Mark writes his gospel, either having already written it or in the process of being written, this maniacal leader, Nero, was in control of the government. Interesting that we would talk about such a thing as we celebrate Independence Day this very Sunday. This particular maniacal leader, Nero, persecuted Christians mercilessly. Not only did Christians have to contend with the civil unrest in Rome itself, but they also had to make sense of the disastrous issues that were related to that in Judea because the Jews were rebelling against Rome. These insurrectionists were responding against the Roman government and therefore against Nero. In fact, in A.D. 66, the Jewish rebellion became so intense, and even though it had some initial success, inevitably the tide turned. And this huge, formidable Roman army made its way into Galilee, and with its scorched policy, by the time Mark wrote his gospel, they had either besieged Jerusalem in A.D. 69, or as you know, they literally destroyed the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, one of the most horrific persecutions ever to hit our world. And during this time, Christians were being roundly persecuted. You remember that in A.D. 64, for some of you history buffs, that Nero and the Roman government began to persecute Christians because a fire swept through Rome. Ten of the city's 14 wards were destroyed, little boroughs, little inner cities within the great city of Rome itself. Ten of the city's 14 were destroyed by this fire. And so in an attempt to squelch the rumors that maybe Nero himself was behind it all, Nero began to find a group, Christians, for whom he could blame the setting of the city on fire. And he did so. And Tacitus, 
in his annals remarks this way, Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed to being Christians. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as for hatred of the human race. Every sort of derision was added to their deaths. They were wrapped in the skins of wild beasts and dismembered by dogs. Others were nailed to crosses. Others, when daylight failed, were set afire to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in the circus, mingling with the people in the costume of a charioteer or mounted on a car. Hence, even for criminals who merited extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of pity due to the impression that they were being destroyed, not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of a single man. It was a tough time. It was an incredibly tough time. If you named the name of Jesus Christ, if you said you were a follower of Him, you were no doubt arrested, and you were beaten, you were scourged, you were punished unmercifully, and ultimately you may have even been one of those who was wrapped in a wild beast's skin and eaten by a dog or maybe crucified or some other very, very hideous, hideous persecution. The fact is, if you were living as a Christian at this time, you would certainly die for your faith. The very admission of being a Christian often led to death. And out of a context like that, as Mark writes his gospel, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, wouldn't that be strange? I mean, if Jesus is the true liberator of the soul, if he's the one who has come to deliver His people from their sins, if He's the deliverer at all, why would He be saying in the midst of this great and intense persecution, if you are wishing to come after Me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me? You see, the Jews would have understood exactly what He meant by taking up your cross. If anyone wishes to come after Me, you ought to be willing to die for Me and for the sake of the gospel. That's in essence the discipleship that I'm demanding of you. You say, boy, how would someone respond to such a message? I have two options, it seems to me, as a Christian living in this time. I could either burn at the stake from the persecution of Nero for claiming Christ, or if I claim Christ, I must deny myself and take up my cross and be willing to die for Him. Which death am I willing to undergo? You see, in our culture, in our world, we know very little of this, don't we? We live in a country that gives us tremendous freedom. In fact, You've probably had no experience, and I certainly have not, of anyone coming to me and saying, you name Christ, you must be willing to die for your faith. No one's put a gun to my head. No one's put a sword to my heart and said, if you 
are a follower of Jesus Christ, be prepared to die right now. Are you willing to follow Christ? No one's burned me. No one's come close. And I'm sure that's your experience as well. And yet in the midst of this tremendous persecution, Jesus gives a very, very hard demand. See, what do I do to make sense of this passage? Well, it's really a very simple outline. Verse 34 gives us the command of Christ, the very command I just read. And verses 35 to 37, Jesus elucidates on that command by giving the comparison of the salvation of the soul of someone versus their own desire to follow the riches of the world. And then in verse 38 and verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus adds the emphasis by reminding them of His coming when He will actually judge those who have responded to the demand of His discipleship and those who have not. I want us to look at this very simple outline this morning, beginning with verse 34, the command of Christ. He says three things if someone wants to be a Christian. Three very simple statements if someone wants to be a follower of Christ. He says, first of all, number one, you must deny yourself. You see it there in verse 34? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. What must one do in order to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? He must first deny himself. This is an aorist imperative. It means there is no option. If you're a follower of Christ, it means inherently within that following that you are a denier of yourself. It means that you must be one who decisively is willing to make a break with yourself. You say, that's ridiculous. How can I make a break with myself? I am myself. How can I make a break with myself? Well, obviously, he's not saying that you must become schizophrenic there is such a thing. He's saying that what you must do is you must be willing to deny your own desires. The word for self here is the word suke, it's the soul. You must be willing to deny your own self, that is your own desires, your own wants, your own lusts. In other words, you must be willing to abandon all self-effort whether it's from someone who is attempting to save themselves by their own good works or their own good deeds, or by someone who's not even willing to do that, but is only willing to fulfill his own desires, not even caring about the salvation of their own soul. Abandoning self-effort as over against the pursuit of a soul-satisfying relationship to Jesus Christ. You know, it's really not difficult to figure out exactly what Jesus is saying here, very simple. In order for someone to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, they must deny themselves. They must deny their own desires. They must look at everything about their life and say, nothing, nothing is more important to me than having a soul-satisfying relationship to Christ. And if anything stands in my way between this soul and Christ, between this satisfaction of the world and the satisfaction of myself and the satisfaction of Christ, I abandon it all. I say no to it. 
I remember in the midst of this intense persecution, what if someone were saying at that very moment, but wait a minute, what about my parents? What about my brothers? What about my sisters? They haven't given allegiance to Christ. And if I do, I'm going to be separated them, not from them, not only temporally, but in eternity. You're saying to me, Jesus, that I, if I continue to follow you, that I may very well be separated from my own family if they don't give allegiance to Christ, if they aren't willing to be persecuted in this same way? And the answer is yes. Yes. You must, like Paul says in Philippians 3.8, say this, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. See the comparison? For me, for you, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Nothing, nothing would dissuade me to do anything other than pursue an intimate, vital, dynamic relationship to Jesus Christ, not even persecution. Because you remember what Paul says when he goes on to speak there in Philippians 3? I count all things to be lost in the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. See what he's saying? He's saying nothing in this world, absolutely nothing. Whether it's the greatest pleasure or the most intense pain is worthy to be compared with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Following Him, loving Him, serving Him. And whether it means the denial of my own desires for the greatest pleasure or the most intense scrutiny of my life and even the possibility of suffering is going to dissuade me from that intimacy with Christ. That's what he means. And then he says, secondly, you must take up your cross, verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must take up his cross. By the way, this is also an aorist imperative. It's a demand. It's a command. It's not an option. It's a decisive act of commitment to Christ. It involves a radical denunciation of all self-idolatry. And every attempt to establish one's own life in accordance with the dictates of your own self. And this is a hard demand. But this is what Jesus is asking for. No, He's not asking for it. He's demanding it. If anyone wishes to follow Me, he must take up his cross. You say, well, I've heard people talk about that. It must be uh, like we say, well, I just have to bear my cross daily, whatever that cross is. No, that's not talking about that. There's no such thing as somebody taking some heartache or some pain or some person and personifying that person or that thing or that pain as though that was your cross to bear. That has absolutely nothing to do with this. What it's talking about is someone being willing to die for Christ. That's what it means. 
Josephus, that early church historian in the early century, called crucifixion the most pitiable of deaths. Cicero described crucifixion as a cruel, disgusting penalty, the worst of extreme tortures inflicted on slaves and criminals. The Romans made the condemned person carry the transverse beam or the cross beam of the cross to the place of execution where they affixed it to the execution stake. So every Jew, every person, every Roman, everyone knew that if you were a slave or a criminal, if you were condemned to death, you had the responsibility by the demand of the government to take that cross beam and literally put it on your shoulders and carry it to the place of execution. You were literally carrying your own execution to the place of execution. And Jesus says, if you are willing to come after me, you must be willing to die. If persecution is called for, so be it. If pain and suffering is called for, so be it. You say, but that sounds again like that works salvation kind of thing. No, it isn't. It's not at all. You say, explain it. What he's saying is, if anyone is unwilling to do so, he's not saying that you can be a Christian, you can be saved, you can be on your way to an eternal bliss with God if you literally take up a crossbeam and put it on your shoulders, announce to the Roman government that you're a Christian and then wait to die. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, if you are unwilling to do so, if it does lead to that, if that is what's going to happen to you, the true metal of your life, the true reality of your soul, is that you would rather do something like that than to satisfy yourself. To live for Christ, you must be willing to be despised and forsaken of men. You must be willing to deny yourself and the world. David Garland says, Jesus does not want a convoy of followers who marvel at His deeds but fail to follow His example. The procession He envisages is a rare sight, disciples following after their Master, each carrying a cross. The imagery that disciples must obey His teaching, including what He says about giving their lives. And frankly, this again is something that is very difficult for a Western mind to understand. Because we don't even know what it is to suffer this kind of intense persecution. We don't even know what it means to, to be literally looking at the face of death in honor of Christ. To be willing to do so. Neil Postman, who wrote a very provocative book and who is no means a Christian, wrote a provocative book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's about our current culture and how we want to be entertained. And he says, and it's so very true, something interesting about the nature of Christianity. And it's always interesting to me when non-Christians talk about the nature of Christianity and they describe the nature of Christianity much better than many Christians. And he says this, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. He's right. Now, it's hard for us to see that because no one's coming to a, with a gun to our head saying, live or die for Christ. What is your answer? You remember the great suffering of Diedrich Bonhoeffer? 
the Nazi death camps. His famous statement applies, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You say, but if it's not physical death for us necessarily, in our culture, what is it? Dying to self. Dying to self. Cross-bearing can be dying to self in a spiritual sense, or it could include the physical death of yourself. It was an integral part of discipleship. You had to be willing to die for your faith in Christ. That is precisely why Jesus says you must take up your cross. Someone said, well, we also face the temptation to evade Jesus' stern demands by substituting a more congenial, less rigorous variant of Christianity. Many today appear to want choices, not eternal imperatives. We live in a consumerist society, and many approach religious life no differently from any other aspect of their life. They come to churches as consumers, wanting to know what am I going to get from this. They want a full-service church with pleasing worship, a good youth program, excellent child care, nice facilities, pastoral care when they need it, and at least passable preaching. I'm glad he added that. They want the best, but are not always willing to pay for it. They prefer religion a la carte and opt for the salads and desserts, but not the main course with its hard demands of obedience. They may shy away from anything that calls for heroism or sacrifice. The church should present the clear demands of the gospel instead of trying to attract seekers by offering a self-indulgent escapism. Folks, have you looked around your culture lately? Have you looked around the churches lately? Do you hear this kind of message? You see the kinds of demands for discipleship that in one passage, Mark chapter 8, is given so clearly to us here? You go into a typical church in America these days, and it's true. It's a consumerist mentality. What's in it for me? What am I going to receive? Well, I don't like this, and I want this, and I'm going to go to this church because this is better. Instead of answering the question to your own soul, what am I willing to give? What am I willing to do? Who am I willing to be in light of what God demands? You see, there is a consensus of agreement that this taking up one's cross meant that a condemned man was forced to take up a wooden cross to his place of execution. And by taking up that cross, a criminal would be showing everyone that he was forced to submit to the government and that they had authority over him. So when someone is willing to take up a cross for Jesus Christ, you're acknowledging that you're willing to die to yourself and you're willing to submit to His authority. See, we have a Christianity these days that says, I want Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. I don't want Him as Lord because that means then that He's going to control things, and I don't want that. What I want is I want salvation from hell, but I want control of my own life. Well, you can't have it both ways. The only way to have it is to have Jesus as your Savior and as the Master and Lord of your very existence. 
You have to say no to your own desires, no to your own will, no to your own comforts, and if need be, be willing to die for Christ by bearing a cross. You say, that's a high demand. It is. Born none other than by Jesus Christ Himself. He died on that cross. And He died to show us the ultimate example of one who was willing to follow the will of another. Well, what an example. Not just an example, a sacrifice. The supreme sacrifice. The only perfect one who could ever have such a perfect sacrifice. Do you want to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must deny yourself. Secondly, you must take up your cross. And thirdly, Jesus says, you must follow me. You must follow me. You know what's interesting about this little phrase, follow me, just two words? It's not a past act. It's not an aorist, which means it occurs at a point. It's not the decisive issue necessarily. It's a present tense reality with continuous results. In other words, if a person is willing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, he must make a decision at a point in time, a decisive act to deny yourself, and at a decisive act at the very same time be willing to take up your cross and with a present tense, continuous reality of your life, be willing to follow Jesus Christ. Not just at a point in time, but throughout the entirety of your life. That's the verbal idea here. You must be willing, present tense, to consciously and continuously follow after the dictates of the master of your soul. You know what follow me literally means? Come on behind me. Come on behind me. Which means that I am willing to align myself behind the person of Christ, lining up my will behind His regardless of the cost. And the command, since it is continuous, becomes then the overriding aspect of the Christian's life following Christ. In fact, you could say it this way. A Christian, synonymously, is one who consciously, continuously follows Jesus Christ. You say, well, everybody realizes that. Everybody agrees with that. Do they? Do they? Do they in theory? Yes. Do they in practice? That's another story. Are people willing to follow Jesus Christ consciously, continuously, as the pattern of their life? Oh, there would be many people. Churches are filled with them who would say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that He died for the sins of those who would ultimately believe, and He is the one who has been raised from the dead. But then you ask that follow-up question. What about consciously and continuously following Jesus Christ? Isn't that a part of salvation as well? Isn't that a part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And then people stammer and stutter. They falter. Because the issue is 
There's the demand. There's the cost counting. Remember last time we talked about all of those passages which give all of those incredible demands like the rich young ruler who said, I want to follow you. I want to inherit eternal life. Tell me what to do. And Jesus said, give all of your money away. Distribute it to the poor and come and you will have a relationship with me. What does the Bible say? The rich young ruler was sad because he owned much money. You see, Jesus went right to the heart of the issue. He was unwilling to part with his riches. Remember the man who built build all of these wonderful barns of produce to pack all of his stuff in. And he was so proud of his accomplishments and God said to him that very night, you fool! Your soul is required of you tonight. Who will own what you have prepared? See, there are so many people who would acknowledge, in theory, the Saviorhood of Jesus Christ. They might even acknowledge, in theory, the Lordship of Christ. But in the reality of life, if I'm not willing to consciously and continuously follow Jesus Christ, then I'm not willing to be His disciple. It's as simple as that. If a person is unwilling to say yes to Christ and to say no to every desire, every lust, every form of greed, every issue of money, pride, power, prestige, preeminence, whatever it is, even if it's something good, your family, even if it's something great, giving away money, if it's done with self-effort, if it's done with self in mind, if it's done with the idea, look at me, look at what I've done, look at my accomplishments, look at what I can achieve. Jesus says you must abandon it. You must abandon all self-effort. You must say no to everything and everyone, and if there's a cross for you, whether spiritual or physical, you better be rid of it. You better say no to it. Because if you don't, you're not willing to be the disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful text because it confronts every single one of us with a clear and clarion call. And I have to ask you, what is your life like? Is this what you believe? Is this what you affirm? Is this what you say is true about you? Are you one of the ones that says, in theory, this is right, this is true, this is a biblical fact, but in the reality of your life, you're unwilling to submit to the Lordship of Christ? You say, well, how much is enough? What's the demand? What's the demand? The demand is everything. It's everything. You can keep nothing to yourself. You can't hold any secrets in. You must lay them all before Him and say, I abandon it all. You say, well, how much do I submit to the Lordship of Christ? Everything. Every desire. Every principle. 
everything about you, everything that you think and everything that you are and everything that you do. That's why that hymn writer said, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. That's the only thing to cling to. If you're trusting in anything else, if you're trusting in yourself, you must abandon your self-effort. If you're trusting in anyone, if you're trusting in your family and their heritage, if you're trusting in tradition, if you're trusting in money, if you're trusting in anything, you must abandon it. You must say no to it. You must be willing to follow the Lordship of Christ. You say, where will that lead me? Only where a perfect, sovereign, good, wonderful counselor will lead. That's trust. Are you willing to trust Him to that degree? If you are, then you're willing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to deny yourself? Take up a cross if need be and follow Christ. Bow your heads with me. Our Heavenly Father, this is a message that will not go away. Whether we read it here in Mark 8 or in so many other places, the Gospels are filled with the command of Christ. Filled with the demand of discipleship. Loaded with the truth that one must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Christ. And Lord, we know that this is not, it can't be a human work. It is only a work that we come to do because we've been infused by the grace and power of Christ to carry such a thing out. Oh, Father, I am praying even now for those within our midst who have not yet abandoned their self-effort, not yet seen the kind of trust that has been spoken about here, kind of life that speaks of a true disciple of Christ, one who's willing to deny themselves their own wicked and sinful heart, willing to deny their own devices, their own lusts, their own greed, their own malice, willing to take up a cross, being willing to die. If called upon to part with our desires and be willing to crucify the flesh and being one who consciously and continuously follows the Lordship of Jesus Himself. Oh, Father, I pray that there would be no one here, no one who hasn't been convicted and challenged by this demand of Christ Himself and who has answered that high demand with no, I won't do it. I won't part with my sin. I won't part with what I think is best, with what I say is right. I will not have anyone ruling over me. Lord, I pray no one would walk away like this. Today is the day of salvation. 
Today it is for us. Tomorrow has not been promised. And I pray, Lord, that each and every heart here is being drawn by You upon the demand of this discipleship. And that they are willing to deny self, to die to dear desire and to follow You. Oh, I pray it is so. I pray that You would bring them to us and allow us to counsel them, talk with them, pray with them, and to see them come to a place of bowing their knee to the true and only Master. I pray that none of us would continue to play games, play church, that we in our soul of souls would be regenerated brought to a place of acknowledging our sin repenting of it placing our trust in Christ and Him alone bring to yourself those who would come for your glory and honor we pray in Christ's name Amen